Hi, everybody. I'm Sheldon from Alcoholic. It's great to be here. Everybody's been so nice, right? I mean, I'm from the Las Vegas where we try to be nice, but we kind of make it out of ticky-tacky and, you know, paper mache, right? We, we, have, we have nothing real there, right? You guys are genuinely nice people. I, it's very cool. I'm sure that the... Uh, rest of the invited guests have the same experience that I do. I was called a bunch and emailed a bunch, and everybody just wanted to make sure that I was uh, uh, taken care of and that I was going to show up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> friend was even worried at 8.55 I wasn't going to make it, so that's uh, 7.55. And Dawn is, and, and Tim have been very helpful. Dawn was... Tim was telling me that Don was concerned a few days before I came in that he wasn't going to pick me up at the airport, that maybe uh, he's got a bad rep or something, right? <laughs> I don't know anything about that, but he called me and he told me he wanted to reassure me. He goes, yeah, he goes, Don's been very concerned that I won't. And I told her I do this all the time. I have, I have this under control and uh, he was there on time. It was he was very good, and we walked with purpose through the uh, the airport uh, uh, out to the parking lot with determination, where Tim could not find his car. <laughs> it didn't bother me. I I uh, uh, I've been picked up for these events many times. Usually, it's the most rambunctious newcomer in the group that gets assigned. The task, Tim told me he has over eight years of sobriety, sometimes quickly, Tim, sometimes slowly. <laughs> but all joking aside, Tim has been an amazing host, and him and Dawn uh, uh, have made me feel very comfortable and very at home, and, uh, and this is a, a great conference. There's, there's good energy here. I'm spoiled. I, uh, I have a great home group. I talked a little bit about my home group earlier on in the workshop, and it, it is a, a three-legacy home group. It is a, a home group I'm proud of. If you guys are ever in Las Vegas, my home group is Connect the Dots, and we meet pretty much every day. And our main meetings are on Monday night, Tuesday night, Friday night, and Sunday morning. And uh, I'd love for you to come and join us at my home group. But I have a great and exciting home group. And then I get to do this periodically, and so... I get to spend time at AA parties, you know, a dozen or, or 18 times a year. And, and what a great way to celebrate AA at a party like this, right? That's what we're doing this weekend is we're celebrating this thing that has given us an amazing way of life. And, uh, and when, you, when, you, when you get to go to these things, you guys, we're all on fire at our local AA party, aren't we? And you guys are a, a pocket of enthusiasm and and, and it's just beautiful. It's a beautiful thing to be here and see you guys celebrating this deal that uh, that brought me back from the gates of death, for crying out loud, right? I, tell a little bit about me. I'm, I was born and raised in England uh, to an English family. I'm not a military brat. I'm going to talk to you tonight in my fake American accent for the, for the entire time. I, I moved here when I was 16, and I had a strong English accent, and it's faded over the 30-some years I've been here, uh, if my mom were to call me, and hopefully she won't join the talk, but if she were, if she were, I would have an English accent again. And uh, I always believe that's because I'm a chameleon. I have the ability to fit in anywhere. It's a gift. My brother said it's because I have no discerning personality of my own. <laughs> I have a feeling that, that he's, he's probably right. <laughs> And I was born in England. I was born in a town called Leeds. It's 200 miles straight north of London to an average family. My family are not alcoholics. My mom likes the occasional glass of wine. We were out for Mother's Day uh, in May, and she ordered one glass of wine and sipped it slowly through the whole meal, swirled it a couple of times. <laughs> I look like my dad. I don't look like my mom. I think I'm adopted. I don't think that that, you know, my dad, he's even worse. He told me that he got drunk a couple of times, but he was having too much fun sober. He didn't see the need for alcohol. <laughs> but uh, my parents got divorced when I was young. I was two years old when my, when my parents got divorced. 
if you guys had any sympathy or feelings, you would have gone, aww. <laughs> <laughs> but you're self-obsessed. It's all right. I'm, I, I know who I'm talking to, right? You either didn't hear me or you went, yeah, my parents left when I was young. I was thinking about me and me and my childhood and blah, 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 blah. Right? I get it. I get it. But they, my dad split when I was very, very young, and we moved from a nice middle-class neighborhood. Uh, we're a Jewish family. I'll talk about that probably a little later. We're a Jewish family. We moved from a Jewish neighborhood to a non-Jewish neighborhood. In fact, a lot of anti-Semitism in that neighborhood. We moved into Section 8 housing, and we became a welfare family. And I hated my dad. Uh, I hated him for what he did to our family. I hated my mom because my mom became angry and, and would yell and scream a lot. I hated my brother because even though he was only two years older than me, he decided as soon as he figured out what, you know, what his size, how much power his size gave him, he decided to become the authoritarian in the family. And I hated my life. I hated my family. I hated my childhood. In, in fact, if you would have asked me before I got here why I drank so much and when I first got here why I had drank my life into a place that I did for me to arrive at AA, I would have said that I drank that way and I, and I, I did all the crazy stuff I did because of my childhood. And if you'd have lived like I lived and grown up the way that I grew up, you'd have drank like me too. <laughs> I had a right to drink like that. You know, the truth is, is that my childhood wasn't really that bad. You know what the worst thing was about my childhood? It happened to me. <laughs> if it would have happened to you, I'd have told you, get over it, punky, right? But, <laughs> but it happened to me, for crying out loud. You know, that there are people, and there may be some people in the room tonight that, that grew up like this. I didn't grow up like this. but the, And if you did, I don't mean to diminish your pain or to, to insult your deal. But there are people in the world that grew up in homes that had horrible, horrible treatment. I mean, real abuse, beaten with electrical cords, locked in closets, starved to death, abused physically, sexually, emotionally. Horrible, horrible childhoods. And not all of them are alcoholics, right? So that can't be the cause of my alcoholism, because some of those people are well-adjusted, for crying out loud. My wife, now, I've yesterday was this 19th anniversary of our first date. Aww. Yeah, right? See, you care about her, it's me, you don't care about her. <laughs> I, see, I see how you are, right? I see how you are. Well, we're married over 17 years, and I know the big book is clear that I'm not supposed to diagnose anybody an alcoholic, and I'm going to go out on a limb. <laughs> There's something wrong with her. I'm, I'm going to guess it's alcoholism, right? She, uh, I love it. She's a, an amazing woman. But she's every bit of alcoholic as any of us are in the room. And she grew up with the kind of childhood that I dreamed of. I imagine if I grew up like her, that you couldn't possibly be an alcoholic. Her parents were married long, long after she moved out of the home. She grew up on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. It gets better. <laughs> They had a boat. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, but I think a boat in childhood is a cure for alcoholism, right? <laughs> I'm not kidding about this one. People have accused me of lying about this, but I'm not. They had a plane oh. and still had alcoholism, right? I don't know how that happens. I dreamed of a child. If I'd have only grown up like that. So I guess my childhood is not the cause of my alcoholism nor hers is a cure for hers. The big book asks a question around page 30. It says, you know what, many of us ask why we're alcoholic. And it never attempts to answer the question. Because who cares? Right? Who cares? Right? I'm dying. Who cares why? The question is, what am I going to do about it? I remember my first drink. Now that does, it's interesting. It doesn't mean anything. It's interesting at best, right? Uh, but I do. I remember my first drink. Now, I happen to love peanut M&Ms. I do. The beautiful colors and the shiny hard shell and the chocolate and the peanut inside and you crunch them and the bits get stuck in your teeth. I just love, I love peanut M&Ms. Do not remember my first bag. <laughs> <laughs> I 
It stands to reason there was peanut M&M number one, doesn't it, right? But it didn't, it didn't scar or stain my life in any way, shape, or form. Right, but I love them. I love them. I remember my first drink. I was with a kid called Barry. Barry was two years older than me. I was nine. Barry was 11. Barry, because he was two years older than me, was instantly cool. I would have done anything Barry wanted to do. In hindsight, I'm grateful he wanted to drink. <laughs> Otherwise, who knows what direction my life might have taken, right? I, I might have a whole different story, right? But, but he did. He wanted to drink, and we stood in front of a liquor store until some guy was willing to go in the liquor store, buy some booze so we could go in the wooded area behind the liquor store and drink. And this guy went and got us a bottle of old English apple cider, just apple juice with a kick, right? And we, we got a bottle of this, and we went in the wooded area, and Barry took a big swig on this bottle, and uh, uh, he looked like he liked it. He handed it to me. I took a big swig on that bottle, and what happened to me at that moment was going to happen to me most time I drank from that day at nine years old till I quit drinking at 28 years old. I took a big hit on that bottle, and I puked out of my nose. Because I'm a nose puker. I'm not good at drinking. Right? Some of you guys are good at drinking, right? You, you, you drink and you all of a sudden you, you dance better than you do when you're sober and you play guitar better than you do when you're sober and you shoot pool better than you, God forbid, you drive better than you do when you're, not, not me, right? I'm not that, I typically will pee on the couch and hit on your mom. It's just the kind of drunk I am, right? Uh, our book says that we're often dangerously and disgustingly antisocial. I am not very dangerous. I'm disgusting. I'm disgusting. I'm a nose puker. But I love drinking. I love everything about it. That first drink that I had, something happened to me that I've heard described from the podium many, many different ways, many times, and here's my way of describing it. Now, I want you to know that nothing really happened. Nothing really happened. But I tell you, I'm this, I'm this kid from a divorced family, and I've come from a Jewish home, and I've got, I don't like the fact I come from a Jewish home. It's caused me a lot of problems. And I'm short, and I'm fat, and I think I'm ugly. And I take a drink of that old English apple cider, and all of a sudden it feels like my parents get remarried. Right? It feels like I lose 30 pounds, grow four inches. Feels like I get an instant nose job, right? Feels like my foreskin grew back. <laughs> I just want to make sure you're listening. That's all. See, see not, not now, but later there might be some good stuff. Right? I just want you tuned in. I don't want you to, in case you miss it later. I'm actually ashamed of that joke. <laughs> not ashamed enough to stop. <laughs> That's the story of my life. I'm ashamed, just not ashamed enough to stop. Right? That's just the way it's always been. Right? <laughs> but I love drinking. I love everything about it. I heard somebody say one time from the podium, and it's just a misquote out of the book, but I understand why they said it, but it's just, it's kind of transposes something our book said. But I heard somebody say one time, that their best day so uh, drink uh, their best day drinking their best day drinking was 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 not as good as their worst day sober and I wonder what were you drinking <laughs> I mean I had some pretty crappy day sober I mean if drinking was that bad for you why the hell did you keep doing it right? drinking was wonderful. It seemed to do for me something that nothing else would do for me. I'm awkward and I'm insecure and I don't feel good about myself and I don't like life very much and I'm uptight all the time and I feel judged, right? I probably was, but I just feel, <laughs> I just feel like, you know, oh. I went to a Jewish day school and I don't know if they really taught this to me, but it felt like this is what they said. It felt like they said that life is a thing that we attest, that we have to endure. And if we endure the test effectively, then we get our rewards later. But it's a test we have to endure. And I don't know much about religion or spirituality, but life feels like a test. It feels like something I have to endure. And at nine years old, in that little wooded area behind that liquor store with that bottle of Old English apple cider, 
I made a decision I was going to drink that stuff as much as I could whenever I could from that day forwards, and I did. And when you're nine years old and you live in that town with my mom in that household, I didn't drink every day when I was nine. A couple more times that year. A couple of times when I was 10. Half a dozen at 11. A dozen when I was 12. By the time I was 14 years old, I was drinking something, taking something, smoking something, doing something every single day of my life, every time I could, with abandon, because it just seemed to be the solution for life. It seemed to be the thing that I could do that would take the edge off the universe that would make me feel like I could breathe. I love it when Johnny Harris talks about, ah, I just wanted to breathe. Man, I love drinking. I loved everything about it. I moved to America when I was 16 years old. I was terrified. I didn't know a few Americans knew how to party. <laughs> Turns out you had a clue. <laughs> I mean, I was, in a, I was in a dry part of the country. I was in... Southern California. <laughs> they, they had a clue. And I, and I picked up right where I left off. And I loved drinking. I loved everything about it. I had this mental picture in my mind of one of my favorite drunks that I, I, you know, sometimes I will drift back to that moment in my life, to how wonderful it was. And this is what it felt like for me. I remember being in San Jose, uh, 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 Mountain View Arena, watching The Grateful Dead. This is probably in about 1987, right? Mountain View is a very steep amphitheater. I'm at the very back on the grass at the very top. I'm on three hits of window pane, right? And I'm just, I'm, I'm having a blast, right? <laughs> and the band is like playing a little bit, and all of a sudden Bobby Will yells, because it's misty, and it's foggy, and it's like if you move too quick, you get damp. You know, it's that kind of a, of, a, of a Bay Area day. And it's not raining, but there's lightning off in the distance. And Bobby yells out, it looks like rain. And the band starts to play, and I'm having a spiritual experience, the likes of which no 12-step call has ever promoted inside. Right? I mean, it was magical. And that's when drinking was working, and if it still did that for me and to me, I would still be doing it. Because it was perfect. It was perfect. I loved it. I loved everything about it. I loved the instant friends I could make. I loved the way I could fit in right away. I loved the fact I could take a couple of pops off of a bottle, and all of a sudden the edge was gone, and you made more sense, and you were prettier, and you were smarter, and I could talk to you, and I just loved what it did for my life. It was fantastic. I, uh, my grandfather, my father, and then myself, believe it or not, were fairground pitchmen. We were Ginsu knife salesmen. <laughs> but wait, there's more. <laughs> and through a weird set of circumstances and events, I ended up on QVC. I was the national spokesperson for Kenwood Appliances at 21 years old. And I, like Wilson out of the big book, I had arrived. I was doing live national television for these guys, and it just was, it, you would think it would be perfect. But what would happen is I would go back to my hotel room at night, and I would drain the mini bar because I knew I didn't belong. I knew I wasn't worth it. I knew that they'd figure out who I was, and I knew that this gig wasn't going to last. And it didn't. They let me go after a while. Now, when they let me go, they said, that they were letting me go because they didn't think it was appropriate that they had an alcoholic crack addict as their national spokesperson. <laughs> I, I knew that wasn't the truth. <laughs> it was because I was a Jew. <laughs> we always know. We got that sixth sense, don't we? I know why really. And I left that gig, and I went back to Southern California, and I got a job at an integrated circuit house, and I became the vice president of sales for an integrated circuit brokerage at 23 years old. And I was terrified. And I knew they were going to figure out that I was the wrong guy, and I didn't know the things they thought I knew. And they just hired me because they'd seen some videotape of me doing something fancy, but this wasn't going to last. And it didn't. But when they fired me, they told me they were firing me because I made the secretaries cry. 
Now, I'm not a secretary's cry, cry kind of guy. I think I'm kind of a fun-loving, you know, let's have a laugh kind of a dude. But the boss had told me, he said, your drinking's out of control. You're not coming in here ever sober, and I can't have you do that. You're barely doing your job, but you're doing your job. You could give me an argument, Sheldon, that you're pulling off your job drinking, but you're making it look like this is the kind of place that you can come to work half lit up all the time, and it's bad for the rest of the employees. And if you're going to keep working here, you need to not drink. I don't care what you do on the weekends, but you need it at night after work, but you can't be lit up while you're at the office. So I didn't drink. I just didn't drink. When I was at work, I wasn't going to drink. I just didn't drink. Between 8 o'clock and 6 o'clock, I could not drink. I'm just not going to drink between 8 o'clock and 6 o'clock, and it's fine. And I won't drink between that. I mean, you better do your goddamn job, right? And I get this restless, irritable, un uneasy angst in me, and I treat people that way because, really, they're just on my last nerve. You know what it is? You know what it is? Seriously, it's that breathing thing that they're doing, right? <laughs> It's constant, right? It's like, <laughs> right? And God, I hate him. So I got fired for making the secretaries cry, and when I got home from that job, I opened up a bottle, and I started to drink, and I continued to drink. And I got another job and another job, and I lost that one, and I lost the next one, and I got another job, and uh, I was about 23 years old, 20, no, more, 25 years old. And I'm staying at a friend's house. I can't, I can't hold a job. I've gone from being Mr. National Spokesperson to the guy that, that, that I, I can't pay the rent. I get paid on Friday. I'm broke on Monday. I mean, I just can't. How do you expect me to? I mean, one check won't cover the rent. That means I have to save some of my second check until rent day. And this is just a, just like a cruel joke, isn't it? And then, and then add some of that money to the check from the first and then give it all to them and you, there's no way that's going to happen. So I can't have my own place, right? So I'm staying at a friend's house on his couch and uh, he came home one night with a few beers and we had a few beers together and he went to bed and uh, he had some other party favors, the, the kind of stuff we don't talk about much here in Alcoholics Anonymous. He gave me a little of that stuff, and I couldn't sleep all night, and I'm just, all I can think all the time is there's more. He's got more. There's more of that stuff. I want some more. There's more. I know there's more. He gets up in the morning, and he goes to work, and I went in his bedroom, and I ransacked his room, and I found his stuff, and uh, he came home that night, and he said, did you, uh, did you take my stuff? I said, No. <laughs> it's not really what I said. What I really said was, no, man, why would you think it was me? I would do something like that. I think it was your son. Did someone go, oh? <laughs> Is this a PTA meeting? Right? <laughs> of course I took his stuff. What else? What else would a self-respecting drunk do, for God's sakes, right? There was more I took. And I'm not a thief. Some of you are. <laughs> Group this size, there's bound to be a couple of losers in the room, right? But I'm not a liar, a cheat, or a thief. I'm none of those things. I'm a survivor, is what I am. And if I gotta lie a little and cheat a little and steal a little to survive, oh boy, I'm gonna do that, right? And he threw me out of his house and I had nowhere to go. I wasn't allowed at my dad's house anymore. I was only allowed in the driveway. My stepmom, his new wife, was sick of me coming in their home and causing arguments between them. They'd always fight when I left. I'd always take something with me they didn't ask me to take. And he would always defend me, and they'd always get in a fight or an argument. She was over it, and so she told him, if you want to see your son, you can, but not in this house. So I was only allowed in the driveway of the house. I had nowhere to go, and my dad, who, any Alanons here? I love Alan. Alanon. Let me tell you, my mom found Al-Anon, and I might talk about her later, and God bless the, the difference that the, the, the family program has made in her life is unbelievable. I'm really grateful my dad never found Al-Anon. <laughs> because I needed money that night for somewhere to go. <laughs> and I don't know about you, I heard a speaker say one time that he thought dad was spelled A-T-M, and I think that's... <laughs> That's about right, right? So Pops put me up in a hotel, and I'm in that hotel, and he'd given me his credit card to check in. I know, I know. 
Because what happens to me when I don't drink is bizarre and it's hard to explain except to people who feel the same way as I do. I've tried explaining it to non-alcoholics. It makes no sense to them at all. It makes no sense to them at all. But what happens to me is when I put down the drink, I start to feel these squirmy emotions. I start to feel like you're judging me and you're thinking about me and you're talking about me and I hate myself so much. I know that whatever you're saying, judging or talking, you're probably right. right. And I don't fit in and I feel afraid and anxious and uptight. And I don't really have these words to put to these feelings. I learned them in Alcoholics Anonymous, but I just know I ain't right. I just know I ain't right. My head starts talking to me, and it starts telling me stuff like, you're a piece of garbage. You know you're a piece of garbage. You had all these opportunities, and you burned them and ruined them. And you hurt your dad, and you broke your mom's heart, and you're no good. And they tried to help you, and you are just, you're worthless. And you'll never amount to nothing. You'll never do nothing. But you're better than them. <laughs> those people over there, those are the real losers, and you're not as bad as those losers. Those, lo no, those are loser losers. You're just a half loser. <laughs> and I start to feel this thing inside me, and I start to feel uptight and empty. And I start to think, you know, I know something that will make me feel better. Not a lot. I don't want to get drunk. I got a little job. I want to show up for it tomorrow. I got somewhere to live and I want to pay the rent. I don't want to burn my life to the ground. I want one, maybe two drinks, three at the most. Two, maybe two, maybe three, three, two, maybe four at the outside. I, this, on a side note, I heard somebody say in an AA meeting, and I thought it was beautiful. He said that he wished he was not an alcoholic, so then he could drink every day. <laughs> I just thought that. I just thought that was. That just doesn't that just explain it? That just explains everything, doesn't it? But I want to have two, maybe three, four at the most. No more than four. Two, maybe three. No more than four. That's all I want to have. Just to take the edge off. I have two, maybe three, four at the most, and I don't know what happens next. But I burn my whole life to the ground. I lose that job. I lose that apartment. I hurt those friends. I come to in the middle of a world of hurt, and I say, I'm never going to do that again. Why would I? Why would I? If you've lived in my life and you've watched your life spiral the way I've watched my life spiral, why the hell would you do that again? I'm never going to do that again. I'm not. I'm not going to do it again. I'm going to go to the good people at Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm going to hang out in their meetings. I'm going to not drink one day at a time, right? I'm, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to drink. Why would I? Until about five or six days in. And then it starts. And it's slow, and it's insidious, and it creeps in. And it doesn't, it just sneaks into my life, and all of a sudden I'm just feeling like, oh my God, is this what it's like? My point of reference of sobriety is about eight or ten days sober. That's my point of reference. Right? Some guy at a roundup or a conference says he's 44 years sober. God bless you, sir. And thank you for being here, because it's beautiful to see the, the, the old timers in the meetings and, and the new people, a lot of times the reason they're not here is because we forget to go pick them up. So go pick up an old timer. Bring them to a meeting. Bring them to a meeting. But I meet a guy that's 44 years sober, and you know what I think to myself? You poor bastard. Because <laughs> I think he's felt seven or eight or ten days sober for 44 years. Oh my God, that must suck, right? I just, I have no point of reference of what it's like to be active in a home group, sponsoring guys, we're the sponsor, making your amends or major amends, an everyday member of Alcoholics Anonymous, practicing all three legacies of our program. I have no idea what that feels like. All I know is what it feels like to be 10 days sober, and I think that's what you promise. I think you say to me, Sheldon, come to AA, take this program, all of it, into your life. Come all the way in. I heard this the other day at a meeting. And sit all the way down. Right? I love that. It just describes it, doesn't it? And if you do that and you'll become an everyday member of AA, you can stay sober and miserable forever. 
You, I say to you guys, I can't do it. I can't stay sober. I can't stand it. I can't, how am I going to stay sober for 10 years, 20 years? How am I going to do it? And you say to me like it's good news. You think it's good news. <laughs> you say to me, do AA like your life depends on it, and you can stay sober, Sheldon. We don't do this for a lifetime at a time. We do it a day at a time. What that sounds like to me when I'm new is I can stay sober one day at a time. One long, miserable, painful day at a time. Slowly like sitting in a prison cell with water dripping softly on your head, day at a time. No! I can't do it! And then you say, if one day at a time is too long, do it one hour. Oh my god, tick. I can hear the freaking second hand on the clock. I want to blow my brains out, for God's sakes. Because my point of reference is eight or ten days sober. So I drink. And I drink. And I get sober and I get drunk and I get drunk and I get sober and I get sober and I get drunk. And I don't want to live anymore. I don't want to live anymore. I can't stand it. I, can't, I don't know if I want to kill myself because I don't think I'm not, but I just don't want to live anymore. I stop fantasizing about slamming my car into the abutment of the freeway. I don't want to live anymore. I mean, what the hell? Let's say I die young. I was 28 when I got sober. So I'm 26, 27 years old at this time. Let's say I die young. Let's say I die at 57. That's young. That's 30 more years of getting sober to get loaded, to get sober, to get loaded, to get drunk, to get sober, to get sober, to get loaded. I can't take it. Sitting in a meeting thinking, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to drink, don't 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 drink, 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 no, don't drink, don't drink, don't drink, don't drink. My head's screaming at me. Don't get drunk, don't get drunk, Sheldon, you don't get drunk, you're a loser, don't get drunk, don't get drunk. You know what, Sheldon, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. No, you know what, why should you do it? You've been sober for a while, you don't have to stay sober, you know what, you should have a drink, have a drink, Sheldon, you deserve a drink. Have a drink, Sheldon, I have a drink, you loser. I knew you couldn't do it. <laughs> get sober to get drunk to get drunk to get sober to get sober to get drunk. July of 1996, I walked into a place called the Kiss Club. I've been going in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous for three years. I was tore up and I was more dead than alive emotionally and spiritually. It was not my worst day. I hadn't lost the most money or lost the biggest job. I had a little car. I had a little apartment. But inside me, I was dead. I didn't want to live no more. I'd been praying to God to let me die. God, I don't believe it. I've been praying to God to let me die in my sleep, but I keep waking up, and every time I wake up, I'm pissed. I'm pissed. July 16, 1996, I went to bed. I hoped to die drunk, and I could not stop drinking. I got on my knees and I begged this God that I didn't believe in. Pops, don't let me, don't let me wake up tomorrow. Please, if you have any compassion, if you exist and you have any compassion, please don't let me wake up tomorrow. I can't live like this and I can't kill myself and I don't know what to do. Please. And I crawled up on my bed and I, and I slowly drifted off to sleep. And the next morning I woke up and I was mad. And I got on my knees again and I begged this guy. I said, why, why, why am I awake? Why am I doing this again? This has been three years of going in and out and in and out. It's been 10 years of embarrassment and humiliation. Have me burning my life to the ground. Is this what I'm supposed to suffer? Why? I do not have a hotline to God. <laughs> but that day I heard a voice. I want to believe it was the voice of God. Maybe it was something funny I ate the night before. I don't know. Maybe it was some memory of some crotchety old timer at the meeting I'd been to. I don't know. But I would like to believe it was the one, one of the very few times I have heard any direct communication that didn't come through my sponsor or a member of my home group. And the voice was clear and the voice said, go back to AA. Go back to AA and do what they tell you. On July 17th of 1996, I walk into the Kiss Club. And I sat down in that club, and I didn't know what to do, so I stayed there. It was a 24-hour club in, 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 in the hood in Las Vegas, and I just sat there. And I had a job, and I didn't show up for it. I just sat there. They had a 7 a.m., I stayed. An 8 a.m., I stayed. They had a noon, I stayed. They had a 5, a 6, 
and eight and ten and the midnight and I just stayed. I stayed until I couldn't barely keep my eyes open and then I would hobble back to my little apartment and I would fall asleep till I woke up when I'd come back to the A club and I stayed. And a half a dozen days later a man walked in that club who was to become my sponsor. And they, the Buddhists say when the student is ready the teacher will appear. And I was ready and he appeared. And after he shared in that meeting, I knew I needed his help and I was afraid to ask for it. When did we start waiting for newcomers to approach us? I don't know. I missed that memo. Right? The big book says when we were approached by those in whom the problem had been solved. But I stand around my home group. Well, if he wants help, he'll ask for my number. And then if he's really desperate, he'll call me. Right? For me, it was like asking a girl at the prom to dance, for God's sakes. I couldn't have asked that man to be my sponsor. I, I, I went up to him and I told him I liked what you shared and I was crying and we talked and he told me he was my sponsor. He said, I'll sponsor you if you like. Meet me at this meeting. Meet me at that meeting. And we started a journey through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Step one was not difficult for me. If you lived like I lived, you knew step one once it was explained. When they used words like pitiful, incomprehensible, demoralization, I went, oh, yeah, that was Tuesday. <laughs> we don't need a dictionary for that one, Spons. I got that one down, right? But he talked about step one, and we talked about powerless over alcohol, and I kind of got it, but I kind of didn't, because, you know, in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, sometimes we talk about the phenomenon of craving as if I'm drinking against my will. You ever heard that? I have a drink, and then I drink against my will. And it doesn't feel like that to me, because what that sounds like is I go to the bar, I say, bartender, pass me the bottle, bartender, pass me the bottle. I pour two shots of Jack Daniels, have my second shot, and then the bottle grows arms and legs. And it throws me on the bar. The whole time I'm screaming, no, you bastard, I'm an alcoholic. And it pours itself down my throat. Ah, make it stop. Make it stop. That's not my experience of the phenomenon of craving. The phenomenon of craving presents itself like this. I changed my mind. <laughs> I'm going to have one, maybe two, three at the most, perhaps four. One, maybe two, three at the most, perhaps four. Four at the most, no more than four. <laughs> five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. That's how the phenomenon of craving presents itself in my life. I change my mind. The tenth drink is as much my idea as the first drink. I am not drinking to overcome anything is what it feels like while I'm drinking. Now, in hindsight, I swore it and I meant it and I wasn't going to do it. And something must have happened in me when beverage alcohol touched my body that made me. I, mean, I have it. It's an abnormal reaction, for God's sakes. A normal reaction in my life is quit drinking. Right? An abnormal reaction in my life is if you're going to drink, to drink till you puke out of your nose. That is an abnormal reaction to alcohol. I have an allergy, but I don't see that until it's explained to me. And we talk about unmanageable. He says to me, now, unmanageable today means something different than the rudimentary description that I was given when I was brand new. I understand unmanageable life in the middle of a sober life. But back then, he didn't talk to me about that because I had no point of reference. So he simply said to me, Sheldon, have you ever promised you would quit drinking? <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Every 10 days for the last four years, right? three years. Have you ever drank after you made that promise? Yes. <laughs> have you been listening? <laughs> I drink every time I make that decision. I've made that decision, gosh, I don't know, three years, every 10 days. What is that? 365 days in the year. Every 10 days, 36 and a half times, three years, about 100, about 100 times. I swore I would never, ever, ever drink again and did. And he goes, that sounds pretty unmanageable to me. <laughs> any of those times that you got drunk have anything in common with everything else? Was there anything that always happened every time they made you drink, every time you drank? Was there anything that each of those times had in common? What? I mean, what was the last time you got drunk? Why did you get drunk the last time you got drunk? Well, that was easy. I got drunk the last time I got drunk because that son of a bitch fired me. And if he hadn't fired me, I wouldn't have got drunk. I understand. It makes sense to me. But every time you drank all hundred times, was it because you'd been fired from a job? 
No. Well, then did any of the times you got drunk after you've been sober for an amount of time have anything in common? How about the time before? The time before, did it have anything in common with, I mean, why did you get drunk the time before? I felt rejected by a girl. Did you get rejected by a girl every time you started to drink? Well, if I'm honest, more than I'd like to admit. <laughs> but not every time. He said, what do they all have in common? I said, I don't know. He said, I do. Every single time you decided to take a drink, you were as stone-cold sober physically as you are right now. Stone-cold sober. You made a decision that it made sense for your future, for you to put beverage alcohol in your life. That sounds pretty unmanageable to me. Every time you drink, you drink more than you want to, and every time you try to quit, you can't quit entirely. Sounds to me like you might be powerless over alcohol and your life might be unmanageable. I said, I get it, but I can't do step two and I can't do step three. And he said, why? Well, I told you before I was born into a Jewish home. That's not really true. I was born into an atheist Jewish home. <laughs> what that means is we're Jews, but we know we're wrong. <laughs> the only people more wrong than us were our crazy Christian neighbors. Now, some of you laughed at the Jewish joke. You didn't laugh at the Christian joke. I just want to point that out, and you might want to call your sponsors. I'm over it already, but you, sh you should think about that for a while. But we know we're wrong. My mom would say things like, she'd say, you know, religion is for fools and children. Fools and children, it is the opiate of the masses. Now get dressed, we're going to temple. <laughs> We do the rituals. We'd never do the other stuff. We do the rituals. We, uh, in my sect of Judaism, you can't drive on, on Saturday. You can't drive to temple. And uh, the temple was five miles from our home. We, the Jews had moved out of the, you know, they'd been urban sprawl, and the temple was five miles. So every Saturday morning, you'd see all the good Jews, the five-mile Jews, <laughs> walking to temple. We'd take the bus to around the corner. <laughs> and walk the last three blocks. Because <laughs> we're three-block Jews. <laughs> I can't do God. I can't do God. I just can't do God. I just not that complicated. I just can't do God. You know, the Jewish faith I got problems with. First of all, there was a teacher in my Jewish day school that was physical with me. He would hit me. And, and I hated him because that's what what, what, what all religion is about. This man was, was, was violent towards me. The guy that ran the choir at the school, Reverend Kamasaw, the cousin of the school, this guy got in trouble for messing with little boys and little girls. And I hated him. Now, I'm still not sure why. I'm not sure if I hated him because he messed with little girls and little boys or he didn't mess with me and it was my first feeling of rejection. I'm not, I'm still not sure what I'm angry at. I'm inventorying that. But, and I hated him too. And I couldn't do the Jewish faith and I couldn't do a Christian faith. I just couldn't do it. Imagine if you were born and raised the way you were born and raised and now you're getting sober in a country where perhaps Muslim or the Buddhist faith or the Hindu faith is the predominant faith. And just like I can't do your faith, you couldn't do their faith. I'm not wired that way. And even though you never said I had to do your faith, let's be honest. It was 1996 in, 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 in Las Vegas, Nevada. And I'm telling you, when they talk about God as he may express himself in the group conscience, I know who they mean. All right? You, can, you, you didn't doubt it when you got here. You knew who they were talking about, and so did I, and I couldn't do it. I can't believe in my God, and I can't believe in your God, so I can't do the third step, because how the hell do I turn my will and my life over to something I don't believe in? It's an impossibility. He said, you don't have to believe in God to do step two, or step three. So what are you talking about? Come to believe in the power of myself. Turn my will and my life over to carry God. I mean, I know you're supposed to be the smart one, Spons, but... What it says. He says, no. He says, do me a favor. I said, what's that? He says, go out to the guys in the home group and ask them how they're sober. Ask them why they're staying sober. I know what they're going to say. Go ask them. So I go ask them. 
couple of guys, the guys I really respect, the guys with long-term sobriety, and they'll say the same thing. It's like it's written on the back of a card they fill out and hand to you, you know, or you've done your fifth step. Now, if anybody asks you, tell them this. I'm sober today because of a power greater than myself. I found in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous that allows me to stay connected to the program and not drink one day at a time. I'd like to thank God for AA. I'd like to thank AA for God. <laughs> now, I'm not trying to goof on that because if you ask me, I'll tell you I'm sober today because of a power greater than myself that I found in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I am. And if I get to meet the big guy at the end of the road, I will say to him, hey, Pops, that AA thing? Yeah. Thanks, man. That was good shit, baby. <laughs> that was good. But he t they tell me this, and so I go back to my sponsor. I go, okay, they'll tell me this so because they found God. I said, okay, he says, let me ask you this. If you found God in step two or step three, why would you do step four? Step four sucks. Why would you do five, six, seven? Why would you do any of them? Why would you do any of them? It says, having had, a, having had a spiritual awakening as the, the only, period, one result, the result of these steps. Step 12 says that. You've got to go through this process. Someone was talking about Wilson's white light experience. You know, I, I, it's a funny deal. It took me a long time to feel plugged in and connected with God. God came to my life, as Cliff Hodges used to say, I used to love Cliff, and he would say that I'll use my sobriety date, not his, but on July 16th of 1996, I was a hope to die helpless drunk. On July 17th of 1996, I haven't had a drink ever since, and that's impossible. God came to me quickly. God comes to most men. The book says slowly his effect on me was sudden and profound. That's sudden and profound. But Bill Wilson's white light experience happens on page 14, and you've got to read page 13 before you think anything happened to him that didn't happen to me. Right? Because 13 comes before 14. So Wilson had to go through a similar process to the process we go through. Some of you are nodding. The rest of you read page 13. It'll make much more sense. <laughs> it's called The Big Book. There's a song about it. Right? <laughs> it's a pretty well-known deal, right? <laughs> right? So, 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 so he says, let's go to The Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he goes to page 47, and he says to me, let's read the book. And in the book, it says on page 47, it says that you're supposed to go to a new guy and say to him, do you now believe, which I don't, I don't believe, I don't believe in God, I don't, I don't believe, stop asking me because I don't believe. He says, I know you don't believe. It says, do you now believe? No, I don't believe, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in God, no. I get it, it's a comma, not a period. Can we read the rest of the sentence? <laughs> do you now believe or are you even willing to believe? Are you even willing to believe that maybe, just maybe, there might be a God, that it's possible, that perhaps there's something more powerful in the universe than you? No, maybe, I don't know. I mean, do I have to give a definitive answer now? No, you don't. You don't have to say you believe now. You have to say you're at least willing to believe that maybe, perhaps, it's possible. Unlikely, I know, but possible. <laughs> that maybe, perhaps, there might be a God. I don't know, maybe, yes, may, I know, yeah. Maybe, possibly, perhaps. Maybe. Unlikely. Unlikely, but maybe. It's possible. It's, it's possible. As soon as a man does say that, as soon as a man says that he either does believe or is willing to believe in a power greater than himself, we emphatically, that means like, yeah, baby, you're done, assure him he's on his way. So if anybody in this room tonight was stuck on step two, you're not anymore. <laughs> Just stop it. Just stop it. I said, well, what do I do now? He said, say the prayer. Just say the goddamn prayer. <laughs> Just say the goddamn prayer. What's the matter with you? Say the prayer. Well, then what? Write the list. Just write the list. Write the list and share the list. And don't worry about six and seven. Nobody understands six and seven. <laughs> And we're going to do some, some check writing. And then you're going to live a lifestyle based on this stuff, and you're going to help some people, and your life will change, I promise. And if it doesn't, you can always go back and drink. They're not closing the liquor stores based on your consumption. <laughs> what he explained to me was that Alcoholics Anonymous, and I love this because you guys are tied here to Father Ed Dowling, and there's a great talk that Dowling gives in A Comes of Age where he says something really beautiful. He says that a friend of his was sharing with him and he was agreeing with him and identifying that on the day that he dies and he's walking towards the pearly gates 
As he gets towards the pearly gates, he's going to turn, turn to the man next to him that is on that final walk from the physical world to the spiritual world and go, holy cow, it was true. Because right? even Father Ed Dowling had his doubts about his spirituality and his connectedness to God, as each and every one of us does. But the very next talk in that book, it's actually the same chapter, but a little further on, is Sam Shoemaker's talk. And Sam Shoemaker talks about Alcoholics Anonymous and refers to it as the scientific method of spirituality. What does that mean? Well, the scientific method is simply this. If I wanted to prove if something was true or not, I would try my best not to take a position on the outcome of the experiment. But I would set up an experiment that would test it. I would set up an experiment, and then I would watch and observe and see the results. And at the end of the experiment, if it proved positive, great. If it proved negative, okay, I know the deal. He told me what I had to do is I had to act as if God existed. I know you don't, have, you don't believe in him, but you're going to take a third-step prayer, and then from that day forwards, I want you to act as if God is real. I know you don't believe in him. Fake it till you make it. My sponsor often makes the joke that when he told me this and when he was told this when he was new, that he said that would make me a hypocrite. And his sponsor told him what he told me. You've been a hypocrite all your life. <laughs> why, why would that bother you? <laughs> of all people, right? <laughs> act as if God exists. You don't have to believe in God, but act as if God exists. Act as if when you ask for help, the help's on the way. Act as if. Act as if God exists. Just act as if. God, I loved what Harold said this morning because it finished a thought that I've been struggling to share from the podium for the last couple of years. And I've been struggling to share it because my emotional feeling is different than the reality. I can share the emotional experience. I couldn't share the reality. And the reality is, is what I shared a moment ago that was inspired by Harold and inspired by my friend Cliff Hodges before he died. God came to me quickly. How do I know? He's the only one I asked to keep me sober. He kept me sober. How do I know God helped me? I asked him and I got to stay sober. I acted as if and he was there. The evidence is irreputable. But I didn't feel connected to God. But I started to act like a spiritual guy. I would say to my sponsor, how do I behave at work? And he would say, act like a guy that wants the job. Get there early, stay late. Do everything they ask you to do when you get there. You know what spiritual principles are, for God's sake, Sheldon? Your mom's not an idiot. Your dad's not an idiot. They taught them to you when you were a kid. Act the way you were taught in kindergarten. Be helpful. Share. Be nice. Be kind. Be polite. Be honest. Do the things that you know that you know but don't want to do. Do them anyway. I started to sponsor a couple of guys. He'd say mean things to me, like, why don't you just pretend one of those new guys is in the room and act like you would if they were watching? <laughs> act as if. Do this for me. Look, not you, but act like a guy that believes in God. Not you, Sheldon, but a guy, spiritual guy with 12 golden steps in his life. Not, not you, Sheldon. A good AA member. Act like a good, not you, Sheldon. Not you. But a good AA member that was trying to get better. Just act like that person, right? Act as if. My life started to change. My life started to change. I had an amazing experience with step four and step five that I don't have time to share with you. I had amazing experiences with eight and nine that I'd love to share with you, but I, I talked too long about the early part of my sobriety. I'm going to tell you a quick story about my dad. My dad and I had a tumultuous relationship well into, into sobriety. My dad, I love my dad. My dad left when I was a baby. And when my sponsor said, you know, your dad, when he did that, you know, he was doing the best he could for you with the tools he had at his disposal. I just thought, get new tools, for God's sakes. Just get new tools, right? It's not good enough for me. It's just not good enough for me. You know, I hated my dad, and I'd make amends to my dad. And then it would feel like I'd get burned again. I got burned when he asked me to leave when I was 18 years old from his home. I got my back turned on when my, this is what I feel like. My stepmom makes him choose between me and her and again, he turns his back on me. Now, I know in hindsight that this facts about my behavior and the way I acted, and he should have done that, but emotionally it feels like that. And then I make amends to him again, and we get close, and he comes to Vegas, and he lives in Vegas with me. I have his only grandchild. He didn't move to live near me. He lived to, moved to live near his grandchild. But I could have stopped that. 
My behavior could have prevented that. And he comes to live in Vegas, then he goes back to England on a trip, and he meets a girl, and he comes back, and he tells me when my son's four years old, he's moving back to England to live with this girl. And my son's heartbroken, and I think he's done it again. I finally get over him leaving me, and now he's going to leave my son and break my son's heart. Now, the truth is, me and my wife have a great relationship. Our home is full of love. My son was sad. His heart wasn't broken. His mommy and daddy weren't going anywhere. He's like, oh, Mr. Gramps, right? But selfishly and self-centeredly, I want him to pay the price for something I lied and said I forgave him for. So I want to torture him for leaving his grandson when really it's not about that at all. It's about how I was hurt again, and I'm reliving it, and I want to torture him. But I want to torture him. And I get mad at him again, and my sponsor says to me, you got to go make amends to him. And I don't want to make amends to him, and he forces me, and I make amends to him, and I get peace with it again. And then as he's leaving the country... He sticks me for $40,000. Now I'm pissed. <laughs> I probably owed him more than 40. Whoever said that, yeah. yeah, 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 right. But he gets me. He gets me. And I go to my sponsor, and I'm, I'm so angry. And I'm blaming my sponsor. I told my sponsor, this is your fault. You know that, don't you? This is your fault. If you hadn't made me made amends to him, Right? I wouldn't be in this position. This is AA's fault. I feel like you and GSO owe me the 40 grand. <laughs> Write a check, for God's sakes. I was so angry. And he says to me, he says this. He said, you know, Sheldon, you can make your decision. If you write your dad out of your life, I understand. I understand. But make the decision based on reality, not on fantasy. Make the decision based upon this. Here's your decision. If you write your dad out of your life, your dad's in his late 60s, he's going to live another 10, 15 years, then he's going to die. He'll suffer, and then he'll die. You're going to live another 40 or 50, and then you'll die. And you'll die knowing that you come from bad people and your father's a piece of crap and that you're probably no good because you've got his blood in your veins, and you'll suffer for 50 years. But then you'll die. And then your son, your son will live for another 20, 30 years beyond that. He'll have 80 years of knowing the blood in his veins is no good. And that's who you're going to make suffer. You're not going to make your dad suffer. It'll be you and your son you'll make suffer. And then he says to me, do you think you'll ever let your son down? Mm, of course I will. We do, don't we? We let people down. He said, what lesson do you want to teach your son? You want to teach your son that the Fetty men, when their fathers let them down, write them out of their life and walk away from them? Or do you want to teach them that the Fetty men love their fathers and honor them and try their best to protect their relationship? What do you want to teach your son? So I got to make amends to my dad. I got to make amends to my dad for our relationship. I get the phone call, my dad's dying. I get on a plane, I go to England where my dad is. And I don't know how to make amends. But it occurs to me that really my dad really did do the best he could with the tools he had at his disposal. I couldn't say that to him. How do you say that to someone? What does that sound like out loud, right? <laughs> Listen, you know, I want you to know that it's not your fault you weren't a good enough person to be my father. <laughs> but I forgive you, you know, because I am a better person than you. You know, it's not your fault, you scumbag. You're not to blame. So I don't know how to talk to my dad, and it comes to me on the plane on the way there, and I sit down with my father, and I tell my father this. I say, Dad, I'm really glad that you're my father. He said, don't be ridiculous. I was a lousy father. And he knew that because he was a smart guy. He was. But if he didn't know that, I told him this far from his face with spit coming out of my mouth, you're a no-good rotten son of a bitch, right? So he knew what I thought. He said, don't be ridiculous. I'm a lousy father. I said, Dad, let me explain. I want you to know that I'm glad you're my father because I love my life today. And people tell me I have a good sense of humor. And that is a gift of your DNA and the blood in your veins and the time I spent with you when you taught me how to laugh at the world and how silly it was. You know, Mom, not that funny. <laughs> That's your gift, Dad, and I'm glad you're my dad. And I'm a good salesman. It's created me and my family an amazing living. I live a standard of living beyond that of what I deserve. I'm not a welfare kid anymore, and my son's never had food stamps. And that's because of the lessons you taught me on that swap me when we were working together and a gift of your DNA. I'm grateful you're my dad. And he drops his head and he starts to cry, and I think, that's a good amends. 
<laughs> I can't wait to call my sponsor and tell him. <laughs> and then he picks his head up and he's got tears on his face and he says, Sheldon, he said, you know, I'm dying. I said, I know you are, Dad. I know you are. He said, I don't know what I believe. I don't know what comes next. I might just die and become dust. I might go to heaven or hell or I might get to come back and go another round in this world. I don't know. But if I come back again, I hope I come back as the kind of man I've watched you grow into in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I tell you what, you know, you know what that meant. You know what that meant. If you're new or if you're not new and you've got problems with family members, listen, my dad died 18 months after that. And we were good. And I'm not haunted by my dad. And the lesson I learned was this, and it's a lesson I want to share. Put the petty bullshit down. Protect the upswings in your life. You're not perfect, neither are they. Make friends, make peace, hold on to love. Hold on to love. Because when my dad died, I did not die listening to certain sons, thinking to myself, that son of a bitch. Smelling certain things or going to certain places with hate in my heart. I love my dad, and I'm grateful for the time I had with him, and I'm not haunted by his ghost. Let go of the bullshit. This program is a program of love and forgiveness and tolerance. Forgive the people in your life, not for them. Because as my sponsor said, they're going to die. But what about you and your kids and the lessons you're teaching and the things you're teaching your sponsees and the people yet to come into Alcoholics Anonymous? and the petty bitterness and the anger that I held on to for all those years and missed some amazing time with my dad. But when he died, we were good. I held his hand as he passed. I read the eulogy at his funeral. I uncovered the stone at his stone setting. But me and my dad are good for that. I'm so grateful, I can't tell you. I can't tell you. Alcoholics Anonymous is an amazing deal. I have gone probably beyond the length of Mike's tape. So I'm just, he's, he's got this nervous look on his face. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to thank you for my life. Thank you for inviting me to the conference. Let's take another 24. God bless.